The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zulsdorf and another podcast. Today we welcome as our guest the late Avery Cardinal Dulles, who died in 2008. In this podcast, we turn back the clock to 2001 and page through the April issue of First Things. At the time, it was still edited by the now-deceased and much-lamented Father Richard John Newhouse, who died in 2009. Avery Dulles, a Jesuit priest and theologian, was made a cardinal by John Paul II in 2001. At the time, Dulles was over 80 years old, and he was not, of course, uh, eligible to vote in conclaves, but he was given the singular honor, as great and distinguished theologians sometimes are. And as a Jesuit, Dulles petitioned the Pope uh, not to make him be consecrated as a bishop. And so he was a priest, but he was a cardinal until his death in 2008. Dulles had a remarkable mind, and he was a very clear writer, who seemed to get better and better as he drew closer to his meeting with God. Well, in one particular essay, the one I will read for you today, he talks about Catholicism and capital punishment. And capital punishment is right now very much a current issue of discussion because Pope Francis recently made a statement that seems to rule out the death penalty across the board, thus making it tantamount to an intrinsic evil. Francis argues that this is a development of doctrine wholly in keeping with what the Church has always taught. Subsequent to Pope Francis' statement, some have called for an explicit revision of the Catechism of the Catholic Church to reflect uh, Pope Francis' claim. Others have openly wondered how something that was clearly accepted by the Church for so very long in, in such clear terms as being possible is now suddenly impossible. How can this be? It is as if the principle of non-contradiction doesn't apply anymore. It's as if to say the two statements, capital punishment is an intrinsic evil and capital punishment is not an intrinsic evil, are somehow both true at the same time in the same way. How do we reconcile this? Well, as Part of my search for an understanding of what's going on, I've turned back to 2001 and Cardinal Dulles's marvelous piece on capital punishment and first things. Uh, it still has uh, real value today because it provides a status questionis for our own consideration of this very hotly debated question. I'm going to read the piece for you. You can access it at the site of First Things, and in the blog post I'll provide the link. And please forgive me if I sound a little stuffed up. I have a bit of a cold which I've been battling for several days, yet I think I can gasp this out and still make it intelligible without diminishing the content. I will in my reading include the inline references that Dulles provides. I'll try to mark them out vocally, 
uh, and also mark vocally the quotations without stopping to say, quote, close quote, etc. I think that just makes it too confusing. And I believe you'll be able to follow pretty well which, which are the references and which are the quotes. As I read, you might tune your ear for Dulles' explanation of the unanimous backing that the fathers and doctors of the church give for capital punishment. You should also listen for the counter-argument by a prominent Italian Franciscan, which sounds rather like what Pope Francis is arguing now. One of the things you should pay close attention to is Dulles' description of how objection to capital punishment has risen just as belief in the afterlife has declined. This is a very interesting point that he makes, and I think that's something that we have to consider deeply. Also, uh, listen for the line, If the church feels herself bound by scripture and tradition in these other areas, it seems inconsistent for Catholics to proclaim a moral revolution on the issue of capital punishment. Also, uh, Dulles reminds us that John Paul II, who was a huge opponent of the death penalty, spoke for the whole Catholic tradition when he proclaimed in Evangelium Vitae in 1995 that, and here I quote, the direct and voluntary killing of an innocent human being is always gravely immoral, close quote. But note that John Paul included in that statement the word innocent. John Paul never said that every criminal has a right to live, nor has he denied in Evangelium Vitae that the state has the right, in some cases, to execute the guilty. Dulles does go over the points about modern developments in the penal system. This is very important. Dulles gives some very good reasons why the death penalty uh, should not be imposed uh, without arguing for a change of teaching. Uh, finally, the late cardinal provides ten points that encapsulate the church's doctrine on the death penalty as he understands them. Uh, this is very valuable for us in our reflection on what's going on today, especially in the controversy surrounding the words of Pope Francis. So here is Avery Cardinal Dulles in his 2001 First Things essay called Catholicism and Capital Punishment. Catholicism and Capital Punishment by Avery Cardinal Dulles, published in First Things, April 2001. Among the major nations of the Western world, the United States is singular in still having the death penalty. After a five-year moratorium from 1972 to 1977, capital punishment was reinstated in the United States courts. Objections to the practice have come from many quarters, including the American Catholic bishops, who have rather consistently opposed the death penalty. 
the National Conference of Catholic Bishops in 1980 published a predominantly negative statement on capital punishment, approved by a majority vote of those present, though not by the required two-thirds majority of the entire conference. Pope John Paul II has at various times expressed his opposition to the practice, as have other Catholic leaders in Europe. Some Catholics, going beyond the bishops and the Pope, maintain that the death penalty, like abortion and euthanasia, is a violation of the right to life and an unauthorized usurpation by human beings of God's sole lordship over life and death. Did not the Declaration of Independence, they ask, describe the right to life as unalienable? While sociological and legal questions inevitably impinge upon any such reflection, I am here addressing the subject as a theologian. At this level, the question has to be answered primarily in terms of revelation, as it comes to us through scripture and tradition, interpreted with the guidance of the ecclesiastical magisterium. In the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law specifies no less than 36 capital offenses calling for execution by stoning, burning, capitation, or strangulation. Included in the list are idolatry, magic, blasphemy, violation of the Sabbath, murder, adultery, bestiality, pederasty, and incest. The death penalty was considered especially fitting as a punishment for murder, since in his covenant with Noah God had laid down the principle, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Genesis 9, 6 in many cases, God is portrayed as deservedly punishing culprits with death, as happened to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Numbers 16. In other cases, individuals such as David and Mordecai are God's agents in bringing a just death upon guilty persons. In the New Testament, the right of the state to put criminals to death seems to be taken for granted. Jesus himself refrains from using violence. He rebukes his disciples for wishing to call down fire from heaven to punish the Samaritans for their lack of hospitality. Luke 9.55 Later, he admonishes Peter to put his sword in the scabbard rather than resist arrest. Matthew 26.52 at no point, however, does Jesus deny that the state has authority to exact capital punishment. In his debates with the Pharisees, Jesus cites with approval the apparently harsh commandment, He who speaks evil of father or mother, let him surely die. Matthew 15.4, Mark 7.10, referring to Exodus 21.17, confer Leviticus 29. When Pilate calls attention to his authority to crucify him, Jesus points out that Pilate's power comes to him from above, that is to say, from God. John 19.11 Jesus commends the good thief on the cross next to him, who has admitted that he and his fellow thief are receiving the due reward of their deeds. Luke 23.41 the early Christians evidently had nothing against the death penalty. They approve of the divine punishment meted out to Ananias and Sapphira when they are rebuked by Peter for their fraudulent action. 
Acts 5, 1 through 11. The letter to the Hebrews makes an argument from the fact that a man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. 10, verse 28. Paul repeatedly refers to the connection between sin and death. He writes to the Romans, with an apparent reference to the death penalty, that the magistrate who holds authority does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. Romans 13.4 No passage in the New Testament disapproves of the death penalty. Turning to Christian tradition, we may note that the fathers and doctors of the church are virtually unanimous in their support for capital punishment, even though some of them, such as St. Ambrose, exhort members of the clergy not to pronounce capital sentences or serve as executioners. To answer the objection that the first commandment forbids killing, St. Augustine writes in The City of God, the same divine law which forbids the killing of a human being allows certain exceptions, as when God authorizes killing by a general law, or when he gives an explicit commission to an individual for a limited time. Since the agent of authority is but a sword in the hand, and is not responsible for the killing, it is in no way contrary to the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, to wage war at God's bidding, or for the representatives of the state's authority to put criminals to death, according to law or the rule of rational justice. In the Middle Ages, a number of canonists teach that ecclesiastical courts should refrain from the death penalty, and that civil courts should impose it only for major crimes. But leading canonists and theologians assert the right of civil courts to pronounce the death penalty for very grave offenses, such as murder and treason. Thomas Aquinas and Don Scotus invoke the authority of scripture and patristic tradition, and give arguments from reason. Giving magisterial authority to the death penalty, Pope Innocent III required disciples of Peter Waldo, seeking reconciliation with the Church, to accept the proposition, The secular power can, without mortal sin, exercise judgment of blood, provided that it punishes with justice, not out of hatred, with prudence, not precipitation. In the high Middle Ages and early modern times, the Holy See authorized the Inquisition to turn over heretics to the secular arm for execution. In the Papal States, the death penalty was imposed for a variety of offenses. The Roman Catechism, issued in 1566, three years after the end of the Council of Trent, taught that the power of life and death had been entrusted by God to civil authorities, and that the use of this power, far from involving the crime of murder, is an act of paramount obedience to the fifth commandment. In modern times, doctors of the church, such as Robert Bellarmine and Alphonsus Liguori, held that certain criminals should be punished by death. Venerable authorities, such as Francisco de Victoria, Thomas More, and Francisco Suarez, agreed. 
John Henry Newman, in a letter to a friend, maintained that the magistrate had the right to bear the sword, and that the church should sanction its use, in the sense that Moses, Joshua, and Samuel used it against abominable crimes. Throughout the first half of the twentieth century, the consensus of Catholic theologians in favor of capital punishment, in extreme cases, remained solid, as may be seen from approved textbooks and encyclopedial articles of the day. The Vatican City-State, from 1929 until 1969, had a penal code that included the death penalty for anyone who might attempt to assassinate the Pope. Pope Pius XII, in an important allocution to medical experts, declared that it was reserved to the public power to deprive the condemned of the benefit of life in expiation of their crimes. Summarizing the verdict of Scripture and tradition, we can glean some settled points of doctrine. It is agreed that crime deserves punishment in this life, and not only in the next. In addition, it is agreed that the state has authority to administer appropriate punishment to those judged guilty of crimes, and that this punishment may, in serious cases, include the sentence of death. Yet, as we have seen, a rising chorus of voices in the Catholic community has raised objections to capital punishment. Some take the absolutist position that because the right to life is sacred and inviolable, the death penalty is always wrong. The respected Italian Franciscan Gino Concetti, writing in Lo Servitore Romano in 1977, made the following powerful statement. In light of the word of God and thus of faith, life, all human life, is sacred and untouchable, no matter how heinous the crimes, the criminal does not lose his fundamental right to life, for it is primordial, inviolable, and inalienable, and thus comes under the power of no one whatsoever. If this right and its attributes are so absolute, it is because of the image which, at creation, God impressed on human nature itself. No force, no violence, no passion can erase or destroy it. By virtue of this divine image, man is a person endowed with dignity and rights. To warrant this radical revision, one might almost say reversal, of Catholic tradition, Father Concetti and others explain that the Church from biblical times until our own day has failed to perceive the true significance of the image of God in man, which implies that even the terrestrial life of each individual person is sacred and inviolable. In past centuries, it is alleged, Jews and Christians failed to think through the consequences of this revealed doctrine. They were caught up in a barbaric culture of violence, and in an absolutist theory of political power, both handed down from the ancient world. But in our day, a new recognition of the dignity and inalienable rights of the human person has dawned. Those who recognize the signs of the times will move beyond the outmoded doctrines that the state has a divinely delegated power to kill, and that criminals forfeit their fundamental human rights. The teaching on capital punishment must today undergo a dramatic development corresponding to these new insights. This abolitionist position has a tempting simplicity, but it is not really new. 
It has been held by sectarian Christians at least since the Middle Ages. Many pacifist groups, such as the Waldensians, the Quakers, the Hutterites, and the Mennonites, have shared this point of view. But, like pacifism itself, this absolutist interpretation of the right to life found no echo at the time among Catholic theologians who accepted the death penalty as consonant with scripture, tradition, and the natural law. The mounting opposition to the death penalty in Europe since the Enlightenment has gone hand in hand with the decline of faith in eternal life. In the 19th century, the most consistent supporters of capital punishment were the Christian churches, and its most consistent opponents were groups hostile to the churches. When death came to be understood as the ultimate evil, rather than as a stage on the way to eternal life, utilitarian philosophers such as Jeremy Bentham found it easy to dismiss capital punishment as useless annihilation. Many governments in Europe and elsewhere have eliminated the death penalty in the 20th century, often against the protests of religious believers. While this change may be viewed as moral progress, it is probably due, in part, to the evaporation of the sense of sin, guilt, and retributive justice, all of which are essential to biblical religion and Catholic faith. The abolition of the death penalty in formerly Christian countries may owe more to secular humanism than to deeper penetration into the gospel. Arguments from the progress of ethical consciousness have been used to promote a number of alleged human rights that the Catholic Church consistently rejects in the name of scripture and tradition. The magisterium appeals to these authorities as grounds for repudiating divorce, abortion, homosexual relations, and the ordination of women to the priesthood. If the church feels herself bound by scripture and tradition in these other areas, it seems inconsistent for Catholics to proclaim a moral revolution on the issue of capital punishment. The Catholic magisterium does not, and never has advocated unqualified abolition of the death penalty. I know of no official statement from popes or bishops, whether in the past or in the present, that denies the right of the state to execute offenders, at least in certain extreme cases. The United States bishops, in their majority statement on capital punishment, conceded that Catholic teaching has accepted the principle that the state has the right to take the life of a person guilty of an extremely serious crime. Joseph Cardinal Bernardine, in his famous speech on the consistent ethic of life at Fordham in 1983, stated his concurrence with the classical position that the state has the right to inflict capital punishment. Although Cardinal Bernardine advocated what he called a consistent ethic of life, he made it clear that capital punishment should not be equated with the crimes of abortion, euthanasia, and suicide. Pope John Paul II spoke for a whole Catholic tradition when he proclaimed in Evangelium Vitae of 1995 that the direct and voluntary killing of an innocent human being is always gravely immoral. But he wisely included in that statement the word innocent. 
He has never said that every criminal has a right to live, nor has he denied that the state has the right in some cases to execute the guilty. Catholic authorities justify the right of the state to inflict capital punishment on the ground that the state does not act on its own authority, but as the agent of God, who is supreme lord of life and death. In so holding, they can properly appeal to Scripture. Paul holds that the ruler is God's minister in executing God's wrath against the evildoer. Romans 13.4 Peter admonishes Christians to be subject to emperors and governors, who have been sent by God to punish those who do wrong. 1 Peter 2.13 Jesus, as already noted, apparently recognized that Pilate's authority over his life came from God. John 19.11 Pius XII, in a further clarification of the standard argument, holds that when the state, acting by its ministerial power, uses the death penalty, it does not exercise dominion over human life, but only recognizes that the criminal, by a kind of moral suicide, has deprived himself of the right to life. In the Pope's words, Even when there is question of the execution of a condemned man, the state does not dispose of the individual's right to life. In this case, it has reserved to the public power to deprive the condemned person of the enjoyment of life in expiation of his crime, when, by his crime, he has already dispossessed himself of his right to life. In light of all this, it seems safe to conclude that the death penalty is not in itself a violation of the right to life. The real issue for Catholics is to determine the circumstances under which that penalty ought to be applied. It is appropriate, I contend, when it is necessary to achieve the purposes of punishment, and when it does not have disproportionate evil effects. I say necessary, because I am of the opinion that killing should be avoided if the purposes of punishment can be obtained by bloodless means." The purposes of criminal punishment are rather unanimously delineated in the Catholic tradition. Punishment is held to have a variety of ends that may conveniently be reduced to the following four. Rehabilitation, defense against the criminal, deterrence, and retribution. Granted that punishment has these four aims, we may now inquire whether the death penalty is the apt or necessary means to attain them. Rehabilitation Capital punishment does not reintegrate the criminal into society. Rather, it cuts off any possible rehabilitation. The sentence of death, however, can and sometimes does move the condemned person to repentance and conversion. There is a large body of Christian literature on the value of prayers and pastoral ministry for convicts on death row or on the scaffold. In cases where the criminal seems incapable of being reintegrated into human society, the death penalty may be a way of achieving the criminal's reconciliation with God. Defense Against the Criminal Capital punishment is obviously an effective way of preventing the wrongdoer from committing future crimes and protecting society from him. Whether execution is necessary is another question. 
one could no doubt imagine an extreme case in which the very fact that a criminal is alive constituted a threat that he might be released or escape and do further harm. But, as John Paul II remarks in Evangelium Vitae, modern improvements in the penal system have made it extremely rare for execution to be the only effective means of defending society against the criminal. Deterrence Executions, especially where they are painful, humiliating, and public, may create a sense of horror that would prevent others from being tempted to commit similar crimes. But fathers of the church censured spectacles of violence, such as those conducted at the Roman Colosseum. Vatican II's pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world explicitly disapproved of mutilation and torture as offensive to human dignity. In our day, death is usually administered in private by relatively painless means, such as injections of drugs, and to that extent it may be less effective as a deterrent. Sociological evidence on the deterrent effect of the death penalty as currently practiced is ambiguous, conflicting, and far from probative. Retribution In principle, guilt calls for punishment. The graver the offense, the more severe the punishment ought to be. In Holy Scripture, as we have seen, death is regarded as the appropriate punishment for the serious transgressions. Thomas Aquinas held that sin calls for the deprivation of some good, such as, in serious cases, the good of temporal or even eternal life. By consenting to the punishment of death, the wrongdoer is placed in a position to expiate his evil deeds and escape punishment in the next life. After noting this, St. Thomas adds that even if the malefactor is not repentant, he is benefited by being prevented from committing more sins. Retribution by the state has its limits because the state, unlike God, enjoys neither omniscience nor omnipotence. According to Christian faith, God will render to every man according to his works at the final judgment. Romans 2, 6, Confer Matthew 16.27 Retribution by the state can only be a symbolic anticipation of God's perfect justice. For the symbolism to be authentic, the society must believe in the existence of a transcendent order of justice, which the state has an obligation to protect. This has been true in the past, but in our day the state is generally viewed simply as an instrument of the will of the governed. In this modern perspective, the death penalty expresses not the divine judgment on objective evil, but rather the collective anger of the group. The retributive goal of punishment is misconstrued as a self-assertive act of vengeance. The death penalty, we may conclude, has different values in relation to each of the four ends of punishment. It does not rehabilitate the criminal, but may be an occasion for bringing about salutary repentance. It is an effective, but rarely, if ever, unnecessary means of defending society against the criminal. Whether it serves to deter others from similar crimes is a disputed question, difficult to settle. Its retributive value is impaired by lack of clarity about the role of the state. In general, then, 
Capital punishment has some limited value, but its necessity is open to doubt. There is more to be said. Thoughtful writers have contended that the death penalty, besides being unnecessary and often futile, can also be positively harmful. Four serious objections are commonly mentioned in the literature. There is, first of all, a possibility that the convict may be innocent. John Stuart Mill, in his well-known defense of capital punishment, considers this to be the most serious objection. In responding, he cautions that the death penalty should not be imposed except in cases where the accused is tried by a trustworthy court and found guilty beyond all shadow of doubt. It is common knowledge that even when trials are conducted, biased or kangaroo courts can often render unjust convictions. Even in the United States, where serious efforts are made to achieve just verdicts, errors occur, although many of them are corrected by appellate courts. Poorly educated and penniless defendants often lack the means to procure competent legal counsel. Witnesses can be suborned, or can make honest mistakes about facts of the case, or the identities of persons. Evidence can be fabricated or suppressed, and juries can be prejudiced or incompetent. Some death row convicts have been exonerated by newly available DNA evidence. Columbia Law School has recently published a powerful report on the percentage of reversible errors in capital sentences from 1973 to 1995. Since it is altogether likely that some innocent persons have been executed, this first objection is a serious one. Another objection observes that the death penalty often has the effect of whetting an inordinate appetite for revenge rather than satisfying an authentic zeal for justice. By giving in to a perverse spirit of vindictiveness or a morbid attraction to the gruesome, the courts contribute to the degradation of the culture, replicating the worst features of the Roman Empire in its period of decline. Furthermore, critics say, capital punishment cheapens the value of life. By giving the impression that human beings sometimes have the right to kill, it fosters a casual attitude towards evils such as abortion, suicide, and euthanasia. This was a major point in Cardinal Bernardine's speeches and articles on what he called a consistent ethic of life. Although this argument may have some validity, its force should not be exaggerated. Many people who are strongly pro-life on issues such as abortion support the death penalty, insisting that there is no inconsistency, since the innocent and the guilty do not have the same rights. Finally, some hold that the death penalty is incompatible with the teaching of Jesus on forgiveness. This argument is complex at best, since the quoted sayings of Jesus have reference to forgiveness on the part of individual persons who have suffered injury. It is indeed praiseworthy for victims of crimes to forgive their debtors, but such personal pardon does not absolve offenders from their obligations in justice. John Paul II points out that reparation for evil and scandal, compensation for injury, and satisfaction for insult are conditions for forgiveness. 
The relationship of the state to the criminal is not the same as that of a victim to an assailant. Governors and judges are responsible for maintaining a just public order. Their primary obligation is toward justice, but under certain conditions they may exercise clemency. In a careful discussion of this matter, Pius XII concluded that the state ought not to issue pardons except when it is morally certain that the ends of punishment have been achieved. Under these conditions, requirements of public policy may warrant a partial or a full remission of punishment. If clemency were granted to all convicts, the nation's prisons would be instantly emptied, but society would not be well served. In practice, then, a delicate balance between justice and mercy must be maintained. The state's primary responsibility is for justice, although it may at times temper justice with mercy. The church, rather, represents the mercy of God. Showing forth the divine forgiveness that comes from Jesus Christ, the church is deliberately indulgent toward offenders, but it too must on occasion impose penalties. The Code of Canon Law contains an entire book devoted to crime and punishment. It would be clearly inappropriate for the church, as a spiritual society, to execute criminals. But the state is a different type of society. It cannot be expected to act as a church. In a predominantly Christian society, however, the state should be encouraged to lean toward mercy, provided that it does not thereby violate the demands of justice. It is sometimes asked whether a judge or executioner can impose or carry out the death penalty with love. It seems to me quite obvious that such officeholders can carry out their duty without hatred for the criminal, but rather with love, respect, and compassion. In enforcing the law, they may take comfort in believing that death is not the final evil. They may pray and hope that the convict will attain eternal life with God. The four objections are therefore of different weight. The first of them, dealing with miscarriages of justice, is relatively strong. The second and third, dealing with vindictiveness and with the consistent ethic of life, have some probable force. The fourth objection, dealing with forgiveness, is relatively weak. But taken together, the four may suffice to tip the scale against the use of the death penalty. The Catholic magisterium in recent years has become increasingly vocal in opposing the practice of capital punishment. Pope John Paul II in Evangelium Vitae declared that, as a result of steady improvements in the organization of the penal system, cases in which the execution of the offender would be absolutely necessary are very rare if not practically non-existent. Again, at St. Louis in January 1999, the Pope appealed for a consensus to, the, to end the death penalty on the ground that it was both cruel and unnecessary. The bishops of many countries have spoken to the same effect. The United States bishops, for their part, had already declared in their majority statement of 1980 that, in the conditions of contemporary American society, the legitimate purposes of punishment do not justify the imposition of the death penalty. 
Since that time, they have repeatedly intervened to ask for clemency in particular cases. Like the Pope, the bishops do not rule out capital punishment altogether, but they say that it is not justifiable as practiced in the United States today. In coming to this prudential conclusion, the magisterium is not changing the doctrine of the Church. The doctrine remains what it has been, that the state, in principle, has the right to impose the death penalty on persons convicted of very serious crimes, but the classical tradition held that the state should not exercise this right when the evil effects outweigh the good effects. Thus the principle still leaves open the question whether and when the death penalty ought to be applied. The Pope and the bishops, using their prudential judgment, have concluded that in contemporary society, at least in countries like our own, the death penalty ought not to be invoked, because, on balance, it does more harm than good. I personally support this position. In a brief compass I have touched on numerous and complex problems, to indicate what I have tried to establish, I should like to propose, as a final summary, ten theses that encapsulate the Church's doctrine as I understand it. 1. The purpose of punishment in secular courts is fourfold. The rehabilitation of the criminal, the protection of society from the criminal, the deterrence of other potential criminals, and retributive justice. 2. Just retribution, which seeks to establish the right order of things, should not be confused with vindictiveness, which is reprehensible. 3. Punishment may and should be administered with respect and love for the person punished. 4. The person who does evil may deserve death. According to the biblical accounts, God sometimes administers the penalty himself, and sometimes directs others to do so. 5. Individuals and private groups may not take it upon themselves to inflict death as a penalty. 6. The state has the right, in principle, to inflict capital punishment in cases where there is no doubt about the gravity of the offense and the guilt of the accused. 7. The death penalty should not be imposed if the purposes of punishment can be equally well or better achieved by bloodless means, such as imprisonment. 8. The sentence of death may be improper if it has serious negative effects on society, such as miscarriages of justice, the increase of vindictiveness, or disrespect for the value of innocent human life. 9. Persons who specially represent the Church, such as clergy and religious, in view of their specific vocation, should abstain from pronouncing or executing the sentence of death. 10. Catholics, in seeking to form their judgment as to whether the death penalty is to be supported as a general policy or in a given situation, should be attentive to the guidance of the Pope and the bishops current Catholic teaching should be understood, as I have sought to understand it, in continuity with scripture and tradition.
that was Cardinal Dulles's 2001 First Things essay called Catholicism and Capital Punishment. One of the things I found intriguing in it is Dulles's explanation that the state has an obligation to uphold belief in the existence of a transcendent order of justice. In the past, that has broadly been the case. Today, however, the state is seen mainly as an instrument of the will of the governed. So, if the state has lost its relationship with the transcendent order, then the death penalty does not express divine judgment on objective evil. Instead, the death penalty, rooted in man's perspective and not God's, expresses the collective anger of the masses. In that case, capital punishment is not retributive justice in the good sense, or the proper sense, but rather it's vengeance, and hence it's very hard to justify. Uh, that's one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin, I thought it was very interesting uh, that he made the point that uh, if there is a lack of belief in the afterlife, which of course involves judgment, then the death penalty seems to be pointlessly harsh to people. So as belief in the afterlife diminishes, so too um, opposition to the death penalty has grown. So belief in the afterlife really changes the grounds of the argument. Uh, there are many other points in Dulles's essay which I think are helpful, and I hope that reading of the essay was helpful to you in some way as you ponder the ramifications of Pope Francis' recent statement about capital punishment. Thank you for listening. This is Father John Zulsdorf. Please pray for me as I will for you.